This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. This is the Glenn Beck Program. One month from today, we are done with Barack Obama as President of the United States. Yes, one month from today, America's nightmare will be over. Who's been the biggest beneficiary of having Barack Obama in the White House? I'll let you ponder that for a moment. Welcome to the program. I'm Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. I'm your host for today. This is the Glenn Beck Program, filling in for Glenn. What an honor this is. I'll give my usual disclaimer. This is Glenn's program. This is a, he's a brand. He has built this brand. Uh, those tuning in today, you are his listeners, and I want to be respectful of that. But at the same time, I've been given the liberty, if you will, to express my own views. So if I say something that you don't agree with, I say something, uh, you know, you get all all uh, rankled about. Don't worry about it, right? Life's too short. Blame me. Don't blame uh, Glenn, and don't blame the blaze. I got big shoulders. I get blamed for a lot of stuff. I still have some room on those shoulders. Coming up on the show today, we're going to be joined by two guests, actually, one in the uh, second hour, one in the third hour. I think you'll enjoy it. We're going to be joined uh, in actually the first hour by uh, Hans von Spakovsky. He's an authority in a wide range of issues, including civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, immigration, the rule of law, and government reform. He's a senior legal legal fellow in the uh, Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. And with Hans, we're going to talk about the United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division and uh, the consent decree process where the federal government uh, liberally has taken over police agencies under the Barack Obama administration and how that leads to a rise in, in, in crime and violence under those consent decrees. Also, we're going to be joined later in the program by David French. He's a staff writer at National Review. He's an attorney. He concentrates his practice in uh, constitutional law and the law of armed conflict. He's a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And with David, we're going to talk about Black Lives Matter and their affinity, their love affair with the now departed, the late uh, Fidel Castro. Also, we're going to talk about the CIA colluding with the media to uh, put out glowing reports about themselves 
it's more evidence of of the corruption that has gone on in this country and in our institutions of government. And it starts in the White House. It extends to the United States Department of Justice. You remember Loretta Lynch meeting with the husband of a person under investigation, and that was when she met on an airport tarmac. She did not believe that this would get out, but she met with uh, Bill Clinton. And, of course, you know, she blew it off at first. She said, well, we just talked about his grandkids and, you know, we talked about his golf game and so on and so forth. And for like five days, this woman stood up there and continued to deny that there was any impropriety or conflict of interest in doing that. And when the pressure got so heavy on the White House, she finally buckled and said it was wrong for her to do that. Actually, she should have been investigated and probably had her law license suspended over that. Uh, we've seen corruption in the IRS with going after uh, people because their political views differed from that of the White House. The IRS was weaponized and not giving people their tax-exempt status or slow-walking that ability for those people to do that and engage in constitutionally protected activity, and that's the political process. So we'll talk about that as well. Let's get back to uh, what I said to open the program. Who's been the biggest beneficiary beneficiary of, of President Obama in the White House? I will suggest to you it is the convicted criminal. Came across an article, story the other day, and it's, uh, here's what it says. Obama's pardons the most people ever in a single day. President Obama granted clemency to 231 inmates on Monday, the most ever in one day in U.S. history. The pardons are part of Obama's clemency push before he leaves office in a few weeks. Coming out of the USA Today, it goes on to say that with just 32 days left in office, Obama Obama more than double the number of pardons he granted in the previous seven years. And if my memory serves me correct, I think he's pardoned or, or issued clemency to more people uh, than any president in U.S. history. So this is something new. And this, this USA Today story goes on to say that the president is playing, this is a quote from Jeff Sessions, the uh, nominee to be the next attorney general. The president is playing a dangerous game to advance his political ideology, Senator Jeff Sessions uh, said after Obama granted a single-day record of 214 commutations in August. This story also goes on to say that Obama's actions follow a pattern of pre-holiday clemency that critics have called part of a broken process, and I would agree with that. I'm not going to suggest that he doesn't have the right to do this under his executive power, but I think it's being abused. It's been part of the Democrat uh, uh, campaign, their failed campaign, to embrace crimin- criminality, criminal behavior, criminal lifestyles, and to make excuses for that sort of thing. It's why the American voter rejected Mrs. Bill Clinton to become the next president of the United States. They had seen enough of that stuff, and uh, it was a very slippery slope that they were on, and hopefully we have put an end to that. Uh, came across something else that's kind of interesting here, Planned Parenthood. This comes from LifeSite News. It's, it's, the title says, Does Planned Parenthood do any good for women's health? These stats will shock your liberal friends. But, 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 Planned Parenthood offers all of these other services. That's the battle cry from pro-choice activists across the nation and attempts to redefine what Planned Parenthood clearly is, a business that profits predominantly from the killing of over 3 
120,000 human beings a year. Think about that, folks. The story goes on to say, what about those other services at Planned Parenthood? Well, they're in a free fall, just like the mainstream media's credibility. Breast cancer screenings at Planned Parenthood, they claim to do those, down 51.3% in the last five years. Pap tests, down 64.7%. Prenatal care, which looks to be facing an eventual phase-out, is down 44%. HPV treatments, down 37%. All of these decline have occurred in Planned Parenthood's fiscal years 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, and 2014. But you won't hear that from America's fake news outlets like MSNBC, CNN, NBC News, New York Times, Huffington Post, L.A. Times, and many more. All you hear, all you will hear is that undeniably distinct sound of cheerleading for Planned Parenthood. Story goes on to say that Failure pays. Well, Planned Parenthood doesn't see less health care as a failure. Since Cecile Richards took over the helm at the eugenics birth organization, the number of annual abortions committed rose from 289,006 to 323,000 in 2014, a 12% jump. That's an increase from 23% of all U.S. abortions to nearly 32% today. As something worth celebrating at a place that kills for a living. Well, Planned Parenthood and killing the unborn is like Hillary Clinton and corruption, this story says. They are inseparable. One of the first things I think that Donald Trump should do in his first 100 days upon assuming the, the Oval Office is to reinstitute that ban on public funding for abortion. Look, I'm not going to sit here today and get into uh, whether, whether Roe v. Wade should be reversed, reversed, but I don't want my federal tax dollars going to the killing of the unborn, not to mention that Planned Parenthood kills more black babies than any other race. Again, I'm Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark, filling in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck Radio Program. If you want to get in on any of these uh, topics today, the call-in number is 888-727-BECK. That's 888-727-2325. We're going to take a break, and on the other side, when we come back, we're going to be joined by my first guest, uh, Hans von Spakovsky, and we're going to talk about consent decrees. Let's take a break. The Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. This is the Glenn Beck Program. 
Welcome back to the program, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark, your host for today. This is the Glenn Beck Radio Program. Last week, Attorney General Loretta Lynch said that it is possible that the Justice Department and the city of Baltimore and their officials will have a consent decree in place to reform the city's police department over the next few weeks. Uh, She said that she was hopeful to have an announcement on the status of the consent decree negotiations between the police department and the city. And this is a quote from her. We're looking forward to getting a positive response from city officials on finalizing this consent decree and making sure that everyone in Baltimore has the constitutional policing that all citizens deserve. This follows the death of Freddie Gray uh, that resulted in riots in the city of Baltimore. I'm joined on the line today by Hans von Spakovsky. Hans, I I introduced you in the opening. Uh, People have a a little bit of your bio. Welcome to the program. Sheriff Clark, thanks for having me. Hans, here's where I want to start. Your experience or, or, or knowledge about the United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, their attitude, uh, their temperament, their their um, um, zeal, if you will, to go after police departments across the United States. Yeah, the Civil Rights Division has a particular section inside of it. It's called the Special Litigation Section, and they are the ones that are responsible for uh, policing police departments. What what they're doing is enforcing this federal statute that prohibits what's called a pattern in practice of unconstitutional behavior. The, here's the problem: the 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 people who work in that, the lawyers who work there, they were all hired from uh, liberal, progressive advocacy organizations like the NAACP, the ACLU, uh, prisoners' rights organizations. Um, There's one woman in there who, before she came to the Civil Rights Division, was working trying to get one of the terrorists in Guantanamo Bay uh, released. And and not only do they not have any experience in law enforcement, uh, they have a real hostility to law enforcement. one of the folks that we know who heads that section uh, has expressed his hatred for American law enforcement. And so you've got people coming in supposedly uh, to see how law enforcement uh, uh, and police departments are performing who who hate the police. And they go far beyond what they're supposed to do. They often uh, come to conclusions that aren't supported by the evidence. It, it's really one of the worst worst offices inside the Justice Department. You know, it's interesting because yesterday on this program I talked about Debo Adegbele, who uh, Barack Obama uh, last week, the end of last week, gave a six-year appointment to the uh, U.S. DOJ Civil Rights Division. And I talked yesterday about the the attitude of Debo Adegbele. He's a black racialist. He's anti-police. He was turned down uh, by the United States Senate. He was not concerned. His confirmation was rejected in a bipartisan fashion uh, to become a federal judge. And then Barack Obama turned around and uh, tried to make them the head of the U.S. DOJ Civil Rights Division. And at the time, there were several U.S. senators, including Pat Toomey, uh, among others, who said he was not a good fit. He didn't have the right temperament. He comes in with a bias. Uh, He's very anti-police. And so at the end now... Barack Obama continues to shove this guy down our throats with uh, this appointment, the six-year appointment that doesn't require Senate confirmation uh, to be a part of the U.S. DOJ. But you mentioned in a talk that you gave that I attended 
that these uh, many of these, not all of them, many of these are career bureaucrat lawyers that if they weren't working in the uh, United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division as career bureaucrat lawyers, they'd be speaking, uh, uh, they'd be uh, doing professor work at some liberal university. Why do you think that is, that that the uh, U.S. DOJ is full of these uh, biased individuals? Well, they're self-replicating. Um, I, I know from my experience there that the managers of, of the different offices and sections, um, all of whom are very liberal career folks, um, they, they, frankly, they discriminate in their hiring in the, in the career positions. If you're a conservative, if, you, if you're somebody who believes in the Constitution, the rule of law, uh, you might as well forget applying to work. Uh, there, because the managers make sure that only individuals who they consider to be very liberal will get hired. In fact, there was an inspector general report uh, released three years ago. This is the inspector general of the Justice Department, and he criticized uh, one of the other sections there, the voting section, for uh, in its hiring practices ignoring individuals who came in with really high. Uh, professional qualifications in favor of hiring almost all of their lawyers only from five liberal advocacy groups, including uh, the ACLU. So you can see how they basically slant the hiring process to make sure that only very liberal lawyers who agree uh, with them and who are hostile to the police uh, are the ones who are going to get hired. Why should these cities uh, fight and resist these consent decrees? Because uh, the department goes far beyond its authority under the law. I mean, let me give an example of what I mean. Um, the law they're enforcing says, has, says there has to be a pattern in practice of official misbehavior. In other words, look, you may occasionally get uh, a policeman who goes too far, you know, uses excessive violence. Um, the fact that one police officer does that in a large um, police force of a city, that doesn't meet the, the requirements of the law. And the, only, uh, the only way it would meet the requirements of the law is if the city had an official policy of telling all of its officers to engage in that kind of excessive violence. It has to be a pattern and practice of it. Right. The, the, this department, this Justice Department, goes after police departments for what are considered the, these isolated incidents, and tries to tie them up into saying, oh, well, the entire department engages in that kind of behavior, therefore we have to put in all these standards for the entire department. And then they go far beyond just correcting that problem. Instead, they try to impose their own ideas, their own standards of how law enforcement should behave, including, by the way, putting in, and this is something they did in the Ferguson, uh, city of Ferguson, they put all kinds of social engineering into their uh, thing. In the Ferguson case, uh, the consent decree has basically a quota hiring in it for everything from uh, racial and gender characteristics to their sexual identity and, and, and things like that. I mean, it's just crazy what some of these towns unfortunately agree to, to do with the Justice Department. You know, these things are onerous. These things are expensive. And yeah. in many of the cities that are under these consent decrees, what we have found is that they've led to an increase in crime. I was talking to a um, Oakland 
PD, Oakland Police Department, Oakland, California, uh, several weeks ago, and he was saying to me, Sheriff, he says, I can't do police work anymore. Every time I make a traffic stop, uh, I have to spend time filling out forms. I have to collect data right. for the United States Department right. of Justice. And, and so it, it prevents me from going back into service to serve people. Hans, I'm coming up on a break. Uh, I have to let you go, but I want to thank you for joining me. And if I get the chance, uh, we'll continue this conversation. Thanks very much. Thank, thanks for having me. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck Radio Program. Coming on the other side of the break, we're going to get into this 21st Century Policing Task Force that was convened by President Barack Obama. And I'm going to offer a thesis, an argument, if you will, uh, that these recommendations are causing officers to lose their their uh, their survival edge. Back on the other side of the break. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Thanks for staying with us. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark, I'm your host today on the Glenn Beck Program. Call in number is 888-727-2325. That's 888-727-BECK. Deadly terror attack yesterday in Berlin, and then they had a uh, terror attack in, in Turkey as well, where a Russian ambassador was killed. Again, terror rears its ugly head. I was encouraged to hear this. Uh, this was... President-elect Donald Trump's response. This is a quote. These terrorists and their regional and worldwide networks must be eradicated from the face of the earth. That's the kind of language I want to hear out of my commander-in-chief. For the last eight years, all we've heard after one of these terror attacks, including the ones here at home, Orlando, San Bernardino, uh, upstate New York, all we would hear from the current commander-in-chief, we'd get lectures about uh, we can't blame uh, Islam and, and we can't blame Muslims, and no one was ever suggesting that anyway. No one has ever suggested that all Muslims are responsible for this or believe in it or support it, or that Islam is a religion in total was at the heart of the problem. Radical Islamic terrorism is. So I think it's encouraging that at least uh, we'll have a new direction We'll have uh, a new, we'll have new rhetoric, if you will, as it relates to uh, these terror attacks, which are going to continue. Look, here in the United States, we're a target-rich environment. We're an open society. We want it that way. We do not want to shut everything down. And, and you know, look what we're doing at our nation's airports with the TSA. You know, we suspect every American traveler of being a terrorist, every single one, gets put through the screening, they're felt up, they get their... Their, their baggage and their luggage screened and searched and everything else. But yet when one of these happens, you know, from this, from this current president and this administration, all we hear is, well, you know, we, 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 we're doing something wrong and we must have done something wrong to upset these individuals, so on and so forth. So, you know, my 
thoughts and prayers, and I'm I'm sure yours as well, are with the people of Berlin as they struggle with this. But one of the things that Europe has to realize is their open borders and their 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 belief in and support for open borders is somewhat to blame for this. My limited understanding is still early in this investigation. It's some refugee that was in some refugee camp, uh, probably inspired, ISIS-inspired, but uh, time will tell in that investigation. So we'll see what happens there. Here's what I'm going to get into next. This The President Task Force on 21st Century Policing. President Barack Obama, as a result of the, uh, the Ferguson and the, the Baltimore riots, convened a task force. He was going to transform American policing. Here's a guy who's never policed, not for one hour in his life. He knows nothing about policing. And he specifically knows nothing about policing at the local level. What officers deal with on a daily basis, what they come across on a daily basis, how dangerous this job is. So he convenes this task force, and he puts puts bureaucrats on the task force, including another black racialist, Brittany Packnett, I think her name is, Black Lives Matter, hates cops, puts her on the task force. He did not put one street-level law enforcement officer on the task force to get their perspective of what's happening at ground level, officer. What are you dealing with on a daily basis? What can we do? What do you see? What can we do to help you do your job more effectively and in a safer manner? Not one. He puts all these law enforcement executives, mainly chiefs. I don't believe he put any elected sheriffs on the task force. And they come up with this set of recommendations. And when I read this thing, when it first came out, I read it. I read the report. And then I immediately put it in the shredder. I said, this stuff is crazy. It's going to get officers hurt and killed. Here are a few of the recommendations that came out of this, uh, this task force. Building trust and legitimacy. Community policing and crime reduction. Training and education. Safety and wellness. The future of community policing. Police and oversight. Here's some more that came out of this, this, this um, 101-page report. Some principles, treating people with dignity and respect. We've always demanded that of our law enforcement officers. Does it happen from time to time when cops go outside our code of conduct and mistreat people? Sure, and we need to deal with that. Here's another one. Giving individuals voice during encounters. Now let me stop here. When a law enforcement officer makes a lawful stop, traffic stop, field interview stop, it has to be based on either reasonable suspicion or probable cause. That's what the Constitution is, rule of law. We can't just stop people willy-nilly or say, hey, uh, I just don't feel right about this individual. Let me pull them out. You, you can't do that. Am I suggesting it never happens? Well, of course not. But the officer has to articulate at some point why that stop was made. But once that encounter is made and it's a lawful stop, that's not a 50-50 proposition. We're not giving anybody voice during these encounters. Law enforcement officers give lawful commands. Get out of the car. Let me see your hands. Let me see your your driver's license, your insurance. And you know what? You have to comply with it. Voice during the encounter? What, a discussion about what the officer's doing and and whether or not that officer should be doing it? You've got to be kidding me. 
One of the other recommendations, being neutral and transparent in decision-making, conveying trustworthy motives. This is amazing. Here's another one here that really got me. This is what led me to believe this thing was going in the shredder when I was done. It says law enforcement agencies should build relationships based on trust with immigrant communities. I don't deny that. This is central to overall public safety. But here's what they recommend. To decouple federal immigration enforcement from routine local policing or civil enforcement and non-serious crimes. It says here the Department of Homeland Security should terminate the use of state and local criminal justice systems, including through detention, notification, and transfer requests, to enforce civil immigration laws against civil and non-serious criminal offenders. Listening sessions. So in other words, they're saying the federal government shouldn't uh, work with local law enforcement uh, agencies to enforce immigration. This stuff is insane. It's completely insane. So they make these recommendations. And we're going to continue this uh, uh, through the break. But they make these recommendations. But there's something that's missing here. Something very important. Again, 888-727-BECK or 888-727-2325. There's something very important missing from these recommendations. You know what they don't talk about? Officer safety. This report and this task force basically is trying to turn law enforcement officers, a very dangerous job, into social workers. There's a reason why we don't have social workers responding to police calls for service. It's not a good fit. It's too dangerous. So we're going to remake police officers. At least this is what Barack Obama's vision is. We're going to remake police officers into something that they weren't trained to do. It's not their skill set. It's not that they can't get better at some of these things, but it's not in their wheelhouse. So when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about how I believe, and I'm offering this as a thesis, which is an argument, that we're dulling their their, their senses, and it's leading to police officers getting hurt and killed. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck Program. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. Welcome back to the program, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark, your host for today and for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. Again, the call-in number is 888-727-BECK, 888-727-2325. Before we went to the break, I was talking about this 21st century uh, task force on, on policing, transforming policing that was put together by President Barack Obama. And in his attempt to transform this profession into something that it's not, and I'm offering a thesis. I'm doing some more work on it right now, uh, but I'm offering the thesis that uh, we're dulling law enforcement officers' senses on the street, senses that they need to stay alive. We're turning them into things like negotiators, arbitrators. It's not a good fit for the realities of street life for a law enforcement officer. Uh, Before we get back into this, let's go to the phones. George from Pennsylvania, welcome to the program. 
Good morning, Sheriff Clark. Thank you for uh, being there and for what you're bringing to the table. My pleasure. I have two questions for you, and I think that if you answer these, this might help the listening audience understand a little bit more about immigration law and maybe some of the misunderstandings that people have. Now, I, I'm not an attorney, and I don't play one on TV, but I would, what I'd like to understand is, first of all, it's my understanding that immigration law in the United States is a civil infraction, not a criminal infraction or offense? Well, first of all, there are civil and, and criminal. And again, I'm not a lawyer either, but I, I, I'm, I have some familiarity. I have some responsibility and I've been involved with uh, some programs working with the uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. One of them was called Secure Communities, which was ended by President Obama. But if you come back into the country after you've been deported, that becomes a criminal offense. That's what we were dealing with out in San Francisco with Kate Steinle. That guy had been de- deported five or six times. So that's a criminal offense. And also, uh, I-, I talked about it the other day, I think it's 8 U.S.C. 1324 that provides criminal penalties for people who harbor, uh, hide, and provide cover to people that they know are in the country illegally. So it's both civil and criminal. What's the penalty for, like, repeat apprehension under the criminal side of, of reoffending for reentering the country? Well, I don't know about those details. I think it's up to five years to start with uh, in prison. But for the uh, 8 U.S.C., U.S. Code of 1324, uh, for sanctuary cities or individuals, uh, the penalty is up to one year in federal prison and a heavy fine. Okay. Second question. With respect to your community, and I think that this applies to a lot of communities around the, around the country, if a bunch of illegal immigrants are dumped or migrate to a community, and then the schools are forced to take in illegal immigrant children and educate them and provide resources and buildings and teachers and all the stuff to successfully accomplish that. From your experience, can you comment on what it does to the taxation and, 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 and the tax revenue for the people of that area that now all of a sudden find themselves having to build two or three new schools because that load was not previously there, and all of a sudden it pops up and they have to meet that need. Sure, George. First of all, thanks for the the call. It's a strain on local resources, and that's one of the other reasons why you have to control uh, the influx of people into your country, because it is a, 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 uh, a strain on local resources, schools and things like that, uh, that you have to be able to plan for. Plus, you know, in addition to national security and domestic security issues and public health issues that I talked about on uh, yesterday's program, you want to control um, the influx of another country's ne'er-do-wells. I'm not afraid to say that. All right. With your immigration and, and, and every country's concerned about this, you want to make sure that you're getting the best of the brightest people who are going to contribute to this society and not just be a drain on it. So that's another reason. But getting back to this 21st century um, um, task force on policing, now, there's an emphasis on, on less than lethal force, uh, de-escalation, more negotiation and dialogue, they stress. And that's okay in, in, in many situations, but it not, it's not in some of these deadly encounters that law enforcement officers um, are confronted with. And what I believe is when I get through with this, um, this thesis, if you will, this argument, which I know I can prove, uh, what we're going to find is it's dulling officers' senses. You know, officer uh, killings are up 68% in 2016, 68% over last year. The ambush killings of police officers, and that's one of the things I'm going to zero in on, 
is, uh, you know, we're dulling their sentence. Officers need to be in a state of hypervigilance continually on their tour of duty, always scanning the environment, looking for danger, looking for things out of place. No matter how routine the call is or the traffic stop, you know, there's not much that's routine in a law enforcement officer's um, daily work. And so what we train them to be is hypervigilant. And I think we're dulling that sense when all this training now, implicit bias, that nonsense, uh, things like, um, uh, you know, being a negotiator and, and de-escalation. And as it indicated in one of these uh, uh, things here that I read about, you know, uh, uh, initiating more dialogue as if it's a 50-50 proposition, which it is not. And so officers over time, this is going to happen over time, it doesn't happen overnight. We're teaching them to be social workers and we're teaching them less to rely on their survival skills which are important to keep law enforcement officers alive, this is going to have catastrophic consequences on um, uh, future generations of law enforcement officers that um, make a decision or determination that they want to get involved in this type of career. Uh, This is a survival. There's a survival mentality that needs to be instilled in a law enforcement officer. They need to be versatile. There's no doubt about that. But at the end of the day, I want these officers to come home, go home to their families, and uh, as we're seeing with some of the, some of these statistics, uh, that's not really happening the way it needs to be. I'm Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark, and for Glenn Beck, this is the Glenn Beck Program. We have to take a break. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. for today. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. The call-in number is 888-727-BECK. That's 888-727-2325 if you want to opine or get in on any of these conversations. I'm going to do a little self-promoting starting this block. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter, and that's at Sheriff Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E. I think you'll find that interesting. Uh, my 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 tweets. The liberal mainstream media likes to keep up with them and uh, try to contort some of the things I say into something uh, and try to destroy me with it. They have not been successful thus far. I don't think they will be. I think about what I'm doing before I put out a tweet. I never do it on impulse. And I always ask myself if I know it's going to be one of those cutting-edge tweets, I always say, what can the liberal mainstream media do to turn this thing inside out 
or upside down or contorted into something I didn't say, and that's why they haven't been successful, although they'll keep trying. Also, you can follow me in my blog, and it's the People Sheriff at pathios.com, and it's P-A-T-H-E-O-S.com. Also, I have a book coming out in March, Cop Under Fire, Beyond the Hashtags of Race, Crime, and Politics for a Better America. You can pre-order that book at Amazon.com, and also, I'm, my understanding, it's available at Barnes & Noble for pre-order, but it's due to come out in March of 2017. You know, I was looking again at this. I talked a little about it a little bit before earlier, uh, I should say, uh, this terror attack in Turkey. This is something that we should keep an eye on because this is not the first incident involving Turkey and Russia. It was a Russian ambassador, the ambassador that was shot and killed at some uh, art exhibit or whatever uh, in Turkey. And apparently... The early reports, the Russian ambassador was shot because of Russia's involvement in Syria. Uh, this one here might be, this one's one that President-elect Donald Trump is going to inherit, this situation. And, and here's why I say this is one we really need to pay close attention to. If you recall, uh, sometime last year, it might have been earlier this year, a Russian fighter jet was shot down by the Turkish army. And uh, Turkey had had accused this fighter jet of violating their airspace. It killed a Russian fighter pilot. And all eyes were on Russia as to how they were going to handle this thing. And, uh, you know, nothing drastic happened. But I'll tell you why this, this one here is important. Because Putin has to look at it this way. You know, how many more times is a Russian citizen or a Russian soldier going to be shot and killed and not have Putin or Russia do anything about it. I mean, that would be, after a while, it's going to be viewed as a sign of weakness, and that's what Putin has to think about. So that's why I said it'll be interesting to see what their response might be. Will will Russia go to the U.N. and try to, you know, put together a coalition of uh, support for some sort of action against Turkey, or will they act unilaterally? Uh, They have the right to defend their sovereignty and defend their citizens. I know if that happened here in the United States, yeah, the, I, I guess the the preferable route is to, you know, go to the U.N. and do all that stuff. But, uh, you know, when it comes to the commander-in-chief of the United States, you know, we don't need, he does not need uh, permission from the world to defend American sovereignty, American interests, and American uh, citizens. So that'll be interesting to watch. Here's what we're going to get into now. Again, the call-in number, 888-727-BECK, 888-727-2325. I'm going to talk about rape on college campuses. This is a an issue that exploded uh, recently over the last couple of years. It was a dirty little secret that there was a problem with uh, sexual assault on college campuses. And I want to specifically point to an incident that happened very recently. It involves the University of Minnesota and their football program. And the things I want to uh, talk about is what is the proper course of action for the university to take? I mean, some of this, you know, some of the the course of action, it's a no-brainer, but some of it's not, and, and I'll get into why that is. But here's what happened. Five of uh, ten University of Minnesota football players were suspended from the team uh, 
recently in the fallout of a student sexual assault. This comes from the Star Tribune out of Minneapolis. From the team in a fallout of a student sexual assault allegation, and, and these 10 students now face expulsion from schools, from the school. They've been suspended from the football program. It says four other players face a one-year suspension, and another could get probation stemming from the September 2nd incident. So that's within the last couple of months. The school discipline comes weeks after a criminal investigation resulted in no arrests or charges. Now, that's key. Okay, no arrests of these players were made, and it does not look like, according to the prosecutor who reviewed this thing, it doesn't look like uh, criminal charges will result. But there's some twists here that you need to know about. This was a party. The football players had a party, and... uh, I was drinking, and there was a young lady there, and she claims that up to 12 of these players forced themselves, had sexually assaulted her in a bedroom wherever this party was. I believe the party was off campus. There was an underage recruit who was present, and he's one of the ones that is alleged to have had uh, sex with this uh co-ed, the student. So the university took this action and suspended these players, and some of them are going to be expelled from the school, or at least there's a process, and that has started, even though no criminal charges have been filed. Now, just because no criminal charges have been filed does not mean that uh, the school shouldn't take action. And, And oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, there was no crime committed or nobody was arrested. It doesn't matter. Here's the first thing I said to myself when I learned about this, what the hell kind of young men are we raising in this country? Most men know what's right and what's not right as it relates to these sorts of things. This is not the first time this has happened. You know, let's be... Honest about this. You get a college campus environment, even if it's a, 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 a dorm off campus, you get fraternities or you get these football players, you get alcohol, and then you introduce women or a woman into this thing, and that is a recipe for disaster. No good is going to come of that, ever. And these are just the ones that we hear about. How about the ones that we don't hear about? There was one that happened at Marquette University. It actually made the Marquette University in my hometown, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But it did make the media sometime after where the campus security kind of dissuaded the woman from making a an accusation against some basketball team uh, players of sexual assault. Something happened, and, and they talked her out of it. And later on, she uh, had remorse and, and brought this up, and, and it, it it hit the fan. So you had a university who tried to squelch it. Here the university takes action. No criminal charges have been filed. No arrests have been made. We come back on the other side of the break. I want to get into some of the moving parts on this thing. we got to unpack this. And I'll talk about some cases that have happened in the past and figure out, uh, you know, what's the right course of action for the school to take? I'm Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. In for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. We'll see you on the other side of the break. This is the Glenn Beck program. Mercury.
program. Thanks for staying with us. I'm your host for today. This is the Glenn Beck program. I'm Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. Before we went to the break, we're talking about this this issue of, of rape or rape allegations on college campuses. And I'm talking about the ones where you have these frat parties or you have these parties in general and you have uh, either athletes or, or frat members and you start mixing in alcohol and, and, and girls and uh, sometimes it's a recipe for disaster. One of the questions I asked was, you know, what kind of young men were, were, were raising that, that don't know? They know. I, I shouldn't say they don't know. Uh, you got 12 women, 12 men, I should say, are accused of having sex with this one woman at this um, University of Minnesota uh, situation, 12 football players. Uh, you know, when we're not talking about the, the, the stranger sexual assaults where someone is a, uh, is abducted and, and brutally raped, and we're talking about these things that involve a party, alcohol, uh, there was consent, it was consensual, it wasn't consensual, and these are very difficult to prosecute. They're very difficult to investigate as well for law enforcement. You know, it's a he said, she said, you collect evidence, there's evidence that some sort of uh, sexual activity occurred you can determine that but the consent issue is one that is not clear and then that's very tough for the prosecutor as well and what does the school do in this case the university of minnesota acted uh very quickly and suspended these players some of them are facing expulsion the coach at the time uh not at the time that the, the the football coach issued a statement after it was learned that 10 of the players were suspended, and then the rest of the football team got in on this and announced a boycott and said they weren't going to play in the upcoming bowl game, the Holiday Bowl, which I think is December 27th in San Diego, California. That's when this thing broke in the, uh, on the sports news networks because they were threatening to boycott the bowl game as if that you know mattered in this situation. But anyway, the coach said uh, he was never more proud of his players because they stuck together. You know, the, the, the players that said we're going to boycott the bowl unless this suspension's lifted. Wrong answer. Very wrong answer. The coach's response should have been, I'm disappointed that the young men who are part of this program that I lead didn't do the right thing in this situation, didn't exercise discipline. That's what he should have said. He said he was <laughs> never more proud of his players because they stuck together in this boycott. You know, it's, it's this kind of attitude that, that doesn't help these situations. This is not the most famous case where, where this situation occurred. I, I think the, the, the iconic case is the Duke lacrosse case. You, you may remember that. That's about 10 years ago. This comes from ESPNnews.com. Exactly 10 years and six days before... Uh, Duke and Yale met, uh, this was uh, uh, in lacrosse, a black woman reported to police that three white Duke lacrosse players had raped her during a house party at which she had stripped. So they brought her in to strip. Again, you know, I, I ask, you know, and I, I'm not a Puritan or anything like that, but these are college-age kids. Okay, they're going to do dumb stuff. I'm not naive to think that college kids don't party and, there isn't booze involved in that sort of thing. But they bring this woman into strip. It says here, latent and longstanding tension in the city and on campus around race, class, and gender boil quickly to the surface. The district, the district attorney, 
made inflammatory statements that fueled an intense media firestorm. The DA at the time, the prosecutor, he was a grad of North Carolina, so you know he had no love for Duke, if you know anything about the rivalry. Duke University, North Carolina University, the Tar Heels are about eight miles, separate the two schools. Very intense rivalries in their sports uh, programs. So it says here with Duke Lacrosse, the coach of the team was forced to resign. Their season was canceled. Over a year later, when the Attorney General of North Carolina dropped the charges against the three players, he said, we have no credible evidence that an attack occurred. The DA was later disbarred after he was found to have committed ethics violations in the case. Remember I said he was a UNC grad, so he had no love loss for Duke. It says here, ESPN's recent 30 for 30 documentary, Fantastic Lies, dissects how the media coverage and the prosecutorial misconduct had a profound effect on the families of the men accused. So these men, Duke Lacrosse, they had to cancel their season. Remember, there were some players who were not part of this party. So the, cancel, the season was canceled, the coach was fired, and then they find out later no sexual assault occurred. So when you get this situation, you say, how fast is too fast? And then you get the case of Penn State. A little different because you had uh, 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 underage men. The, the coach, Sandusky, had young boys in the locker room and he was taking sexual liberties. It was brought to the attention, or at least reported, brought to the attention of um, uh, the late Joe Paterno who kind of said, I don't really want anything to do. I don't want to hear about that. So I, I asked the question, and there's no straight answer. How fast is too fast? How slow is too slow to act? And then you have the Baylor University situation where the coach apologized for his role in a scandal that led to his firing. The coach, Art Broyles, was removed as Baylor's head coach on May 26th after a university commission investigation found he was slow to act when confronted over the course of several years with accusations that multiple Bears players, Baylor Bears, that's her nickname, had sexually assaulted fellow students. Two of his former players have been convicted of sexual assault, while a third, a former star defensive end, was indicted on a similar charge. So he was slow to act. Duke may have been too fast to act. You know, to suspend the season, fire the coach, instead of letting the investigation play itself out. But the, the PR disaster for the school is if you wait for the investigation, which is the prudent thing to do, but it's also prudent to suspend the players pending the investigation. I think that's the sweet spot here. We'll get to the bottom of it. We won't get to the bottom of it right away. We won't get to the bottom of this before the Holiday Bowl, but who cares about the Holiday Bowl? Don't release the names. The names are probably going to get out in public anyway, but the university shouldn't release the names. Don't expel them just yet. Suspend them and wait for the investigation and see what happens. It doesn't look like any criminal charges are going to result, but that doesn't mean that the school shouldn't take some sort of disciplinary action. It doesn't have to mean that a crime uh, occurred or that anybody was arrested and charged. It's not innocent until proven guilty. Not for the school, it's not. They have the right, they have the need to take some sort of action, if for no other reason, to tell their alumni and their donors, here's how we deal with this sort of unwanted behavior here at this university. We have values here that we're going to uphold. 
You also send a message to your current students and future recruitees. Remember, there was an underage uh, recruit at this party who had sex with this woman. It was alleged. But you got to send a message. This sort of behavior is not going to go on. This abhorrent behavior is not going to go on at this university. So there is a sweet spot. And these schools need to work hard to find it. You don't always land on the sweet spot. But if you get close, you're going to be okay. But this stuff, and it's going to happen again. We will be sitting here at some point in time with another situation like this. But I think the message needs to be sent. You know, about proper behavior for young men everywhere, not just on college campuses. I'm Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. This is the Glenn Beck Program. We have to take a break, and we'll talk to you on the other side of the break. Welcome back to the Glenn Beck program. Uh, let's see. Let's take a twist here, turn into something else. I want to talk about this deal with the CIA and the president, the president-elect. It's been reported that uh, there's some differences of opinion between the president-elect Donald Trump and the intelligence agencies uh, within the United States federal government. I think Donald Trump is right not to trust uh, these intelligence agencies, they, <laughs> he's going to have to make that determination as time goes by, but I, I wouldn't trust what they're giving him if I were him. You know, I've studied the intelligence process, these intelligence agencies in my graduate degree program. I'm familiar with how they work. And uh, I'll tell you what, the CIA does not have a stellar record. They miss a lot. They've missed a lot of uh, things that they, you know, like, for instance, to follow the Berlin Wall, they missed it. The breakup of the Soviet Union, they missed it. This is an agency that uh, came into being after the 1947 National Security Act, after the bombing at Pearl Harbor. And they were designed to do what, just what the name says, to develop intelligence and give recommendations to the president, keep him appraised of what's going on in world events. Who are the threats? What are their capabilities? And are they planning an attack? That's what they're supposed to do. It's not a perfect world. I understand for the CIA, but there's some things that they just should should not miss. They missed 9-11. There were red flags, but they missed it. 
And so, you know, we'll see how that relationship works out in the end between Donald Trump and uh, the CIA and the uh, National Security Agency and some of those other entities. But I came across a story that was I found disturbing. And there are some parallels with what went on in this recent election between the uh, Democrat candidate, Mrs. Bill Clinton, and the local media. I shouldn't say local media, the national media, where she was given, in some instances, questions to some of the debates. They were clearing stories with the campaign. Hey, we're putting this out, a particular writer. We're putting this story out. Is this okay? Are there any changes you want to make? That stuff should not go on. And we can't trust the media anymore. But also some of our institutions of government are corrupt as well. So this article, it's from The Intercept. It says, the CIA's mop-up man, L.A. Times reporter, cleared stories with the agency before publication. A prominent national security reporter for the Los Angeles Times routinely submitted drafts and detailed summaries of his stories to CIA press handlers prior to publication, according to documents obtained by The Intercept. Email exchanges between the CIA public affairs officers and Ken Delanian, now an Associated Press intelligence reporter who previously covered the CIA for The Times, showed that Delanian enjoyed a close collaborative relationship with the agency, explicitly promising positive news coverage and sometimes sending the press office entire story drafts for review prior to publication. In at least one instance, the CIA reaction appears to have led to significant changes in the story that was eventually published in the Times. Quote, I'm working on a story about congressional oversight of drone strikes that could present a good opportunity for you guys, Delaney wrote in one email exchange to a CIA press officer, explaining that he intended to report what would be reassuring to the public about CIA drone strikes. In another, after a series of back-and-forth emails about a pending story on CIA operations in Yemen, he sent a full draft of an unpublished report along with the subject line, Does this look better? goes on to say that uh, Delaney's emails were included in hundreds of pages of documents that the CIA turned over in response to two FOIA, and that's the uh, uh, information when you want to obtain information on records within the federal government. Uh, Requests seeking records on the agency's interaction with reporters. The email exchanges with reporters for the AP, the Washington Post, New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and other outlets were included. This guy left the Times and, and uh, to join the AP in May. So it goes on to say, when he's, when he's clearing these stories with the CIA, hey, does this look okay, uh, so on and so forth, Quote, it's one thing for you guys to say you killed three instead of 15. It's another for congressional aides from both parties to back you up. Part of what the story will do, if you could help me bring it to fruition, is to quote congressional officials saying that great care is taken to avoid collateral damage and that the reports of widespread civilian casualties are simply wrong. It goes on to say that on June 25th, the Times published this guy's story, which described thorough congressional review of the drone program and said legislative aides were allowed to watch high-quality video attacks and review intelligence used to justify each strike. Needless to say, the agency hadn't quibbled with Delaney's description about uh, one of these terrorists' death in a drone strike. It says here, video provided by the CIA to congressional overseers show that he alone was killed. That claim was subsequently debunked 
Some of those killed were very likely members of Al-Qaeda, but six were local tribesmen who Amnesty uh, Amnesty International believed were only there as rescuers. Another field report published around the same time, this one by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, also reported follow-up drone strikes on civilians and rescue workers, attacks that constitute war crimes. The emails also show that Delaney shared his work with the CIA before it was published and invited the agency to request changes. It goes on to say, on another case, he sent the press office a draft story on May 4th reporting that the U.S. intelligence believed the Taliban was growing stronger in Afghanistan. Guys, I'm about to file this if anyone wants to weigh in. So after they confront... um, this guy on this, it says, reached by the Intercept for comment, Delaney said the AP does not permit him to send stories to the CIA prior to publication. He acknowledged that it was a bad idea. I shouldn't have done it, and I wouldn't do it now, he says. He was not sure if the Los Angeles Times, that's who he was working for at the time, rules allow reporters to send stories to sources prior to publication, but the Times ethic guidelines state, they clearly forbid the practice. We do not circulate printed or Electronic copies of story outside the newsroom before publication. In the event you would like to read back quotations or selected passages to a source to ensure accuracy, consult an editor before doing so. So the Times Bureau chief, the national security editor, said he had been unaware that Delaney had sent drafts, a story draft to the CIA and would not have allowed him to do it. So... This is why there's no trust in government. This is why Donald Trump shouldn't trust the CIA at this point. At the very least, I'd have what Reagan used to say, trust but verify. The CIA press corps was colluding with this newspaper writer for positive coverage. So in other words, we don't know what the CIA, which is steeped in secrecy anyway, but we don't know what they're up to. Now, I, I realize a lot of the things that they're involved with involve secrets. But when they're f- fabricating stories, when they're getting it cleared, when, when the, the writer is saying, hey, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get you guys to look good, this is problematic. It is to me anyway. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark, I'm your host for today. This is the Glenn Beck Program. We've got to take a break. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. Welcome back. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark, your host today on the Glenn Beck Program. I want to share with you a letter I received. I was CC'd on it from an individual. You know, we were talking about terror for a lot of this program. It's uh, rearing its ugly head again. But this is, a, this is relative to how we treat American citizens uh, at airports, the TSA. And I realize these people are just following policy, but the policies don't make sense. And, and the way they do this, 
is they don't allow people to use discretion. When you don't allow people to use discretion, you get what happened um, with this guy here. And I'll just read the letter. He sent it to uh, Congressman Queller, but he CC'd me on it, and Representative Mike T. McCall. He's from Texas. It says, Dear Congressman, in August 2016, my son and I underwent complete body surges at the Tweed Airport in Connecticut. When I required why we were both required to or undergo such thorough searches, we were informed that it was because my son had prescription allergy medicine in his carry-on luggage. When I appealed this procedure in the enclosed August 2016th letter to the TSA, I received a letter dated September 22nd in which I was told that additional screening of the passenger and his or her property after screening medically necessary items may be required and may may include a pat-down. The nonsensical and ineffective security procedure that I questioned while in the Navy that I describe in my enclosed letter appeared to be duplicated by the TSA. If the United States is to be protected, particularly from terrorist attacks, it needs to implement intelligent and effective security measures. Here, here, I would second that. Back to the letter. While TSA officials were patting down a war veteran and his son at a small airport in Connecticut, which made my son ask, Dad, why were we searched like terrorists? The Department of Homeland Security was shutting down Operation Phalanx that was effective in apprehending scores of illegal immigrants and some 13,000 pounds of narcotics. It is my hope that whoever President-elect Trump chooses to head the DHS and TSA will have the experience and common sense to stop harassing veterans, the elderly, and children instead of taking steps to effectively deter terrorist threats, illegal immigration, and drug smuggling. Please do not hesitate to contact me if you are interested in critiquing, critiquing the rationale and effectiveness of our country's security procedures. And then not too long after that, I came across a story. This is from Pix11.com. This woman, I'll just read uh, part of it here, a breast cancer patient said she felt violated and humiliated in a public TSA search at L.A. International Airport after two security agents put her through what she called an aggressive pat-down. It says here uh, she she recently underwent some cancer uh, procedure, and she's pulled to the side as she's going through the screening. And she said she uh, brought some cream on that was part of her her, uh, uh, prescription there. And she said she's wearing a wig because she lost her hair because of the uh, the cancer treatment. And it said she told the agents as she's going through she could not remove her shoes since she was not wearing socks and had an infection on her feet, a side effect of her treatment and chemotherapy. So they let, her, they let her sit down and remove her shoes. After 20 minutes of sitting there because they were debating on how to proceed, I told them my feet were freezing. Also a side effect from chemo. They refused to help me, she said. Now, this is her rendition. I realize there's two sides to every story, but here's her experience. And I'm I'm sharing this with you because you probably have, if you are engaged in a lot of air travel, you probably have some other nightmarish experiences that you could share as well. So it says here, uh, after the TSA agent forcibly and aggressively put her hands down the back of uh, her jeans, the agent explained that they'd have to apply pressure from head to toe, which presented another set of problems for this woman. 
She wears a wig and did not want them to remove it and had a lumpectomy medical port in her chest, which she did not want the agents to touch. I started crying, she said. It was overwhelming and horrific. I, I could not believe this was happening, she said. So after the agent conducted the search, a supervisor arrived, and her bags were emptied. She was made to feel humiliated again after another agent joked about fake eyelashes, blah, 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 blah. This is how we treat American citizens. This does not thwart airplane hijackings. This does not thwart terror. I'm not going to sit here and, and necessarily pin this on the agents who are just, and they'll tell you this all the time. I've had my own experience. We're just doing our job. We're just following the rules. See, what they need at TSA is a risk-based model instead of a follow-the-rules model. Suspecting every American traveler of being a terrorist is not a risk-based model. It's a follow-the-rules so that they can check the box and say, well, we checked everybody. It's not how you identify terrorists by checking Everybody, it slows down the process. It's very expensive. I think TSA has a budget of about $5.9 billion. This is how we treat people? I'd be willing to bet that if somebody came through of of, uh, Arab descent and had their head dressed on and everything else, they would not be treated like this out of political correctness. We got to take a break. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. Staying with the Glenn Beck program. You're going to think this story came out of the Onion. You know, that satirical uh, newspaper. But actually, this comes out of the Wall Street Journal. Did you know that the chief executive of Frito-Lay has vowed to turn the maker of Fritos, Cheetos, and potato chips and Pepsi into a health juggernaut? I'm not kidding. This, this story here says, but while consumers said they all want to eat healthy, often all they want, all they really want are potato chips. 
It goes on to say, but buoyed by less healthy snack brands such as Doritos Chips and Cheetos Puffs, PepsiCo's sales and volumes are on the rise and its profit margins have expanded in 15 quarters straight. Selling junk food. Yeah. That's what people want from Frito-Lay. They want health food. If I want to eat healthy, I'm not going to... (laughs) If I want to eat healthy, I'm not going to buy Frito-Lay products. I know where the produce section is in the store. So it goes on to say that these are hard truths for big food companies. Taste is the biggest factor in snack purchase. No kidding. Salt. That's what they want to taste. So it says here, when people get together, they have snacks like potato chips and pretzels. They don't all sit around and snack on granola bars. Says Norman Deschamps at Market Researcher Package Facts. It's a lot easier for a food behemoth like PepsiCo to generate revenue by tweaking just the Lay's brand of potato chips, the world's top-selling food brand, than to start from scratch with quinoa or spinach. It says the world's biggest food companies have been trying to ramp up healthier offerings for years, but consumers haven't given up their love for all things Sweet and salty. Do you think you'd have to pay a researcher to tell you that? This is fascinating. If I was a shareholder, Frito-Lay, I wouldn't be happy about this. I'd say keep selling the junk food. You know, McDonald's tried this. McDonald's, hamburgers and fries. That's what people want when they go to McDonald's. But, of course, we've turned into the nanny state where government, the federal government and state government, remember New York with Mayor Bloomberg and his elimination of the big gulp sodas to try to get people to eat and drink in a more healthy fashion? So now the government, the federal government steps in and puts all these requirements on these food makers. Now they have to list all of the ingredients and all of the caloric intake, and how much sodium and fat and carbohydrates. I never look at the wrapper of that crap when I go to eat it. If I'm eating a Baby Ruth or a Butterfinger, I just rip the package open and start eating it. I don't care what the ingredients are. I know what it is. It's a candy bar. It's sugar covered with chocolate. Tastes good. I know, I know where to find cucumbers and carrots. So we, you know, you look at this stuff here. Well, McDonald's, you know, they tried to get into the healthy food eating. Remember that? They had this healthy menu sec- section on, in, uh, in their restaurants. It bombed. You know, there's some people that went in there and wanted to order a salad. I wouldn't go to McDonald's to order a salad. You know what people want when they go to McDonald's? Grease. Because it tastes good. French fries cooked in oil. Hamburgers, which are <laughs> they're, they're quarter pounders with cheese. Now it's a double quarter pounder with extra cheese, and now they put bacon on it. That's what people want from McDonald's. 
So McDonald's abandoned that healthy menu. You know why? They were losing money off of it. They realized. They came to the realization, which they didn't have to pay some marketing research guy or woman this. They could have just asked me, how do you think this is going to work? We're going to offer a healthy menu at McDonald's. I'd say, are you guys nuts? Do your stockholders know this? Do you know what people want from you, McDonald's? Quarter pounders with cheese, french fries, and shakes. That's what they want. They don't want wraps, salad wraps. You know, some people eat that. They don't go to McDonald's. If you're, if you're a healthy eater, do you go to McDonald's to get your health food? Don't you go to Whole Foods or one of these other places that, uh, you know, has a little healthier menu? Who, what person that wants to focus on healthy eating steps foot in a McDonald's? What, so they can order a shake and fries with their healthy wrap? I mean, this stuff is insane. It really is. And this goes kind of in line with uh, this other thing I came across here from the Daily Signal. Ivy League students tear down Shakespeare portrait in the name of diversity. It's how crazy this world is because, actually, this country. With this political correctness. That I hope on November 8th of this year was given its last rights. I really do. It's going to take some time. It says here, students at the University of Pennsylvania have removed a portrait of William Shakespeare and re- placed it with a picture of a black lesbian poet for the sake of having greater diversity. The large Shakespeare portrait had resided near a staircase in Fisher Bennett Hall for years until a gaggle of activist students removed it and placed it in the office of the English department head. In its place, they taped up a photograph of Audrey Lorde. I guess she's the black lesbian poet. Never heard of her. The portrait won't be moved back according to a statement from the uh, English department head, because a white male Shakespeare didn't embody the value of diversity. To which I would ask, why not? If you listened to the program yesterday, you, you, you heard me ask or say that you know, you know, a lot of these, these, these liberal mainstream media that were picking, a, picking apart Donald Trump's Cabinet nominees as being too white. And I said, someone needs to ask these people, what are you going to get the white people? So the diversity has to be to the exclusion of whites. You can't have whites, blacks, Hispanics. It can only be blacks, Hispanics, lesbians, transgenders, Muslims, but it can't include whites. So this, this, this uh, department head said, students removed the Shakespeare portrait and delivered it to my office as a way of affirming their commitment to a more inclusive mission for the English department. So that doesn't include Shakespeare? He can't be a part of the inclusiveness, their inclusive mission? Shakespeare can't be a part of the diversity? It can only be a black lesbian poet? This is part of that totalitarianism on college campuses. The left knows better than anybody else. Control the language, you control the narrative. 
It's Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. We got to take a break. This is the Glenn Beck program. Program. Mercury. Seven back. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Welcome back to the program. Merry Christmas from your host today, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Here's another one that you'd think you would find in the onion. This Newsweek writer claims assault by tweet from the Daily Caller. Newsweek senior writer Kirk Eichenwall claimed Friday he was assaulted by a tweet that caused a seizure. Now, the seizure part isn't funny, but assaulted by a tweet. My God, would my Twitter handle be in trouble. It all started with a tweet Thursday from Eichenwald's account that said, at Jew underscore Goldstein, to his wife, you caused a seizure. I'm sorry, this is his wife, you caused a seizure. I have your information. I've called the police to report the assault. That's why I said you think this was out of the onion. This guy would call the police because someone sent him a tweet that he says caused his his wife to have a seizure. So it says the Twitter user Jew underscore Goldstein had sent a GIF, G-I-F, an animated video of changing colors with text that said, you deserve a seizure. The account has been suspended by Twitter. Newsweek told the Daily Caller, they could confirm that Eichenwald's wife, what she said was true. Well, yeah, that means if, if, if Newsweek said it, then that's confirmation. That's enough confirmation for them, I guess. It's not enough confirmation for me. Eichenwald himself went back on Twitter Friday to say he is taking a hiatus from the social media site as he works with law enforcement to bring this guy to justice. you got to be kidding me. That the police would even... Respond and spend time on it? I wonder what police agency this is. It doesn't say here. The Newsweek writer also suggested that the FBI might get involved. (laughs) No, this is not from The Onion, folks. This is from the DailyCaller.com. So he wrote, and this is this Eichenwald. At this point, the police are attempting to determine if this is a federal crime because it appears to be crossing state lines. (laughs) The FBI did not respond to an inquiry about whether assault via Internet GIF is a federal crime. Speaking of that, let's talk about fake news. Unbelievable. And I want to talk about this Russian hacking, this all this uproar over Russian hacking and how the Russians were to blame for defeating Mrs. Bill Clinton and the Democrats. And it was the Russians that led people in the swing states, including Wisconsin and now Michigan, that hadn't gone Republican for several decades in Pennsylvania. How it was the Russians? I mean, I live in Wisconsin, right? I voted for Donald Trump. 
supported Donald Trump. What these stories suggest is that I was going to vote for somebody else, and then I said, well, you know, since the Russians have hacked, I guess I'll go vote for somebody else. I guess I'll go vote for Donald Trump. I mean, this is insane. But this is what they've glommed on to. Remember, they started with the, it was James Comey's fault. That's why she lost. Then it was fake news. And now it's the Russian hacking. And since not much is going on in the political world, most of the media is content with just to report on this, this Russian hacking. And I'm not here to suggest, because I don't know. I'm not here to suggest that Russia doesn't try to hack into databases. They don't try to get an edge. The Americans do the same thing. But to say this caused Donald Trump to get elected is insane. I mean, I'm looking at this piece here from Rasmussen. And it says, the New York Times story titled, Russian Hackers Acted to Aid Trump in Election. U.S. says is based entirely on what else? Unnamed sources, including political appointees of current President Barack Obama. Play that first clip for us, please. But the larger point that I I, want to emphasize here is that there is no serious person out there who would suggest somehow that you you could even rig America's elections, in part because they're so decentralized and the numbers of votes involved. There's no evidence that that has happened in the past or that there are instances in which that will happen this time. And so uh, I'd advise Mr. Trump to stop whining and go try to make his case to get votes. And if he got the most votes, then it would be my expectation of Hillary Clinton to offer a gracious concession speech and pledge to work with him in order to make sure that the American people benefit from an effective government. Now, that was before November 8th. That was President Obama. And that was when the Democrats were claiming at the time that their uh, Podesta's emails were hacked. They may have been. I don't know. I don't know if the Russians did it. You heard, you, you heard the president. He says it's impossible with all the intricacies involved for them to not to get into these systems, but to swing an election. Then he accused Trump of whining, and he said, this is before November 8th, if Trump gets more votes, if Trump wins the election, she apparently won the popular vote because of California, but if Trump wins the election, then she should graciously concede and let's move on. Well, that didn't happen. So now we have all this stuff about the Russian hackers. There's no evidence at this point. Now, post-election, Obama has ordered a investigation into Russian hacking. Obama says, we need to take action, and we will. Democrats are, are, are saying that um, Americans believing fake news is sowing confusion. This is incredible. The Electoral College came back uneventful, no drama yesterday. I believe Trump ended up with 304, might have been 305 electoral votes. 
Only two defectors in Texas out of 36. And then he got one in Maine. I don't know if Maine do, uh, dozers out proportionally or not, but one defector went for Trump. I shouldn't say defector. He got one electoral vote in Maine, and Mrs. Bill Clinton got the other two. So he got 300 electoral votes. And the liberal mainstream media is saying, well, that's not a mandate. Uh, he better move cautiously. I beg to differ. I like the fact that Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, has suggested that the Republicans need to go big on policy issues and policy recommendations. Don't squander this. You don't know how long it's going to last. They control the Senate, albeit not necessarily filibuster-proof, but they control the House of Representatives, and they control the White House. I don't want to hear any more complaining from the Republicans that they can't get anything done because they don't have the power. You strike while the iron is hot. You may not have this supermajority for too long. The midterms are coming up in two short years. Oftentimes, that favors the party out of power. So if we end up with a bifurcated Congress where, let's say, the Dems went back to Senate, I don't think they will, but who knows? Then we'll have gridlock. So they have to strike while the iron's hot. And they better. we got to take a break. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. Coming up in the show is David French. We're going to talk about Black Lives Matter. program. Welcome back. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. Let's go in this direction. I have on the line David French. David French is a staff writer at National Review. He's an attorney, concentrates his practice on constitutional law, the law of armed conflict. He's a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And he recently penned an article in National Review, and it had to do with Black Lives Matter and this love affair with the late Fidel Castro, and I want to talk to him about that. David, thanks for joining me today. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Sheriff. I appreciate it. Uh, why don't you get right into it, this this sickening essay from uh, Black Lives Matter in, in terms of making Fidel Castro into some uh, guy that was to be admired. Yeah, it, it, it's it's really amazing. R- right after uh, Fidel Castro died, Black Lives Matter published a piece 
an essay that, you know, you really, I mean, you really have to read it to believe it, but it, it begins with, we're feeling many things as we awaken to a world without Fidel Castro. And it is, it's really a remarkable essay that, ta- that laments his death, uh, talks about his revolutionary street cred, and then essentially, and, and then thanks him for sheltering uh, some of the most vicious cop killers in American history. There were there were black revolutionaries who killed police officers. Three of them, for example, hijacked a jet after they killed a police officer at knife point, sent the jet to Cuba, and Fidel Castro gave them sanctuary. And so what we're talking about here is a, is a man who not only had a human rights record where more than a million people left his own island to escape him, where he ruthlessly suppressed dissent, he actually harbored in the United States, I mean harbored in Cuba, cop killers. And Black Lives Matter was praising him for that. You know, uh, one of those cop killers is Asada Shakur, who was uh, Warner Forrester was the, uh, I think it was a New Jersey state trooper that uh, she killed or she was involved in it killing. He had pulled over these individuals, his car for a traffic violation. And uh, in part, she got out of the car. She was a passenger in the rear seat and went over. Uh, Warner Forrester had been wounded, so he laid in the street. She ran over to him, grabbed his firearm, and shot him multiple times as he laid on the ground there. She was caught. She was convicted. She was sent to prison in the state of New Jersey. I think it was New New Jersey, yeah. And uh, she escaped. It was an unbelievable escape. Some people came in. They they took some of the uh, uh, prison guards hostage. They got her out. She fled to Cuba. She resides in Cuba to this day, and uh, she's one of the ones that I have uh, pleaded with um, with no success to the Eric Trump-led attorney, uh, United States Department of Justice, to get her back after President Obama normalized relations with Cuba. I said, okay, we can something good can come of this um, normalization of uh, relations with Cuba. Let's get those cop killers back here. And, of course, they're not interested in that. But um, I have said, and I've been very vocal about it, I've labeled Black Lives Matter as a hateful ideology. They, uh, they foster division, as you write in your story here. Uh, they support an anti-cop rhetoric, a cop hatred. And there are people who have killed law enforcement officers in the name name of, uh, of of Black Lives Matter. Why do you think, other than the obvious, you know, that they look at at Cuba and they look at Fidel Castro, that murderous uh, dictator, and they idolize somebody like that? Well, you know, they look at they look at everything in the in the United States through one lens and one lens only, and that's race. And so, Fidel Castro, as part of his anti-American campaign, decades-long anti-American campaign, was constantly trying to create greater racial tension in the United States. And, and one of the ways that he did that was by, uh, was by backing and, and explicitly supporting both rhetorically and providing you know, a home for people who are part of organizations like the Black Panthers or the Black Liberation Army. And so these guys, these, these Black Lives Matter uh, activists, who are, who are the really the, the, the spiritual descendants, so to speak, of the Black Panthers, for example, they look at, at that history, and because they're only looking at it through the lens of race and race only, they don't realize, or at least don't care, the extent to which 
uh, Fidel Castro was cynically using American race tensions to advance his own agenda. I mean, this is a guy who in Cuba discriminated against black Cubans in ways that were grotesque. And he was only exploiting racial, racial divisions in the United States for his own communist means. So he wasn't, he wasn't some sort of social justice warrior. He was a communist dictator thug, but these people refused to see it. You know, part of the, the problem with this, this hateful ideology is the, these people who uh, wrap their arms, arms around it, people who have been invited to the White House, I should add, numerous times to uh, uh, hold counsel with the President of the United States. They don't know their history. They don't know the history here. It's, it's kind of like uh, uh, Colin Kaepernick, quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, you know, taking a knee, sitting down initially and then taking a knee during the playing of the national anthem, he's another one that showed up uh, at a post-game um, conference. You know, you do the the thing after the game. He shows up with a T-shirt with a picture of Fidel Castro on it, and and I look and I the first thing I I think when I see this, these people don't know their history. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, but when I look at, at Black Lives Matter and I look at how this ugly chapter and what it's been and what it's meant for the uh, uh, the American law enforcement officer, and like I said a couple minutes ago, you know, it's led to the death people have killed in the name of, of Black Lives Matter. But um, this has also caused police in uh, ghetto communities throughout the United States to not be as assertive as they need to be, to not engage in the kind of uh, discretionary policing, quality of life, uh, enforcement, some people call it, and it has led to an increase of crime. You look at the city of Chicago, and I talked about it on the program yesterday, they're up to like 753 murders in the city of Chicago in 2016 alone compared to about 495 last year, and last year's total outpaced the year before that. And in the city of Chicago, you have over uh, 3,000 people who have been hit by gunfire and non-fatal shootings so you look at this thing across America, and then these people have the, the, the nerve, the audacity to run around uh, saying, you know, uh, uh, black lives matter. But you look at stuff like that. Where are they? They're nowhere to be found. Black people, uh, good law-abiding black people in many cases, uh, children, you have seniors living in fear in these ghetto communities. And where are they? You know, they're nowhere to be found. And that's the phoniness of you know, their mantra, the phoniness of their claim, their slogan, if you will, Black Lives Matter. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, you know, it's one of the most clever marketing campaigns in history that's contradicted by then about everything that the group actually stands for. For example, on its website, it says flat out that they want to destroy the nuclear, the Western prescribed nuclear family. Well, the destruction of the family is one of the main drivers of social conflict, not just in black communities, but in American communities at large. I mean, uh, and when it comes to, to, uh, the, to violence, uh, what you were saying about the change in policing tactics, which are changes in tactics that Black Lives Matter has been pushing for, there's mathematical, there, there's strong mathematical correlation. If you look in, uh, if you look in Chicago, there's been a decrease in the number of stops. There's been a decrease in the number of, consequently, decrease in the number of drug confiscations, de, uh, I mean, gun confiscations, a decrease in the number of arrests, and a corresponding dramatic increase 
and the number of murders. I mean, all of this is is very well documented. And so, you know, if you're talking about what what is it that saves black lives, well, one of the key things that helped end the the uh, the, the murder crisis of the late 80s and early 90s was very aggressive policing. And also with, and this is something that a lot of people don't realize, with the active and enthusiastic participation uh, of black communities in the U.S., everything from pastors to politicians, the Congressional Black Caucus was out front in the late 80s and early 90s and trying to have, uh, in, in moving towards tougher policing, there, was, uh, uh, there were African-American lawmakers in states around the country seeking relief from this crime epidemic. And so it was the black community that really rallied in the late 80s and early 90s. And now along comes Black Lives Matter. As you said, they don't know their history. And they're trying to undo a lot of the reforms that the black community had led uh, America in advocating for generation, a generation ago that has since saved countless lives. So I'm not sure you know, which community they, community they purport to be speaking to. I think they're speaking for a media community that loves them a great deal. And, and like I said, they have a very clever marketing slogan. I mean, of course, everyone believes that black lives matter. Uh, but what's behind that slogan is a very, very radical agenda that is actually costing lives. Right. And it, it really, in, in essence, though, black lives do not matter, at least to these individuals. They matter to you. They matter to me. matter to a lot of people, but not these individuals. They put out some manifesto not too long ago where some of the tenants were, uh, you know, railing against Israel uh, for the treatment of the Palestinians, railing against or, or, or demanding more money for global warming studies. And I, when I read this manifesto, I said, you know what? I said, black people do not care about global warming. They do not care about what's going on in Israel. Not that we shouldn't care about what's going on in Israel. We do. But I said, here's what black people care about. They care about jobs. They care about better schools for their kids to be able to go to, and they care about safer communities. David, I want to thank you for joining us. Keep up the good work, and Merry Christmas. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, and Merry Christmas to you, too. Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck Radio Program, and we have to take a break. Glenn Beck Program. 888-727-BECK. Mercury. Welcome back to the program. Final segment, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark in for Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. This has been fun. Two straight days. This was new for me. I've done fill-in radio. I've told you that before. I've been a guest host uh, nationally on some programs as well as locally back home. But I've never done uh, successive days. I'll tell you, I got a, a new admiration, not that I didn't before, but for people who do this for a living who are, are good at this, people like Glenn and others. Uh, you know, he comes in, he's got to do this five days and, 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 and no weekends off uh, doing other things. Putting these programs together takes a lot. Again, I want to thank uh, the people on the set here, the, the, the producers and everybody involved in the production of this program. You guys have been great. You really have. Uh, 
provided you, you you guys were the training wheels for the you know in case the uh, bicycle got a little wobbly i'd have the training training wheels to rely on uh, you guys are what makes the show go i don't know if glenn tells you that enough but you do uh he probably does but thanks for everything that you've done it's been great and you know it's kind of interesting i want to close with this and and again this is kind of like the gift that keeps on giving to rehabilitate the Democratic Party, Obama plans to coach young talent. So Obama to the rescue again. He spent eight years destroying this republic, and now he wants to coach new talent. He says here, what I'm interested in is just developing a whole new generation of talent, Obama told NPR's Steve Inskeep in an interview on Morning Edition. There's such incredible young people who not only worked in my campaign, but I've seen in advocacy groups. You know, he's the you know, community uh, organizer. I've seen, pas- I've, been, I've seen passionate about issues like climate change or conservation or criminal justice reform. You know, campaigns, too, for a livable wage or health insurance. And make sure that whatever resources, credibility, and spotlight that I can bring to help raise them up, that's what I want to do. That's something I think I can do well because, you know, he excels at everything. There's nothing that Barack Obama uh, can't do. There's, you know, there's no uh, short suits in his talent box. At least that's what he thinks. I hope that he's serious about this because what he'll end up doing is he will coach a generation of young, starry-eyed liberals uh, in, in the area of orga- uh, community organizing, and uh, this Democrat Party that is in free fall will continue to flounder. So what I always tell people when they point out what's wrong with the Democrat Party. I'm talking people on the right. I say, be quiet. Leave, leave them alone. I said, they're doing fine. They will uh, figure this out on their own. So we'll see what happens there. Again, it's been a pleasure to be with you these last two days. I want everybody to have a very Merry Christmas, a blessed Christmas, a Happy New Year. And remember, Donald Trump is going to need all of us to provide that pushback against the people that want to see him fail And he's going to need our energy as well in order to make America great again. Put the country first, leave the other stuff out of it, and everybody will be fine. This is a Glenn Beck radio program. David Clark, thank you very much. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury.